Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. So one of the wonderful things about the gospel is that it transforms us. When we believe in the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, when we trust that Jesus died for me, Jesus died for you. When we believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again, we are fundamentally transformed. We are moved from darkness into light. We are moved from imprisonment to sin into freedom from sin. And not only freedom from sin, but freedom to do good in the name of Jesus. We are moved from hardship into joy. We are moved from misery into the light of Christ. It's an amazing thing that happens. And, and for all of us, it's a little bit different. Some of you who are Christians have had dramatic point-in-time conversions where you know the day that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you felt something, you had this emotional explosion, and that's phenomenal. And some of you, it's been a little bit different. Some of you, you gradually came to believe in Christ. I remember in our youth group in California, uh, we had this one young lady who was coming. She was coming with her boyfriend who was a part of our church, and she was coming forever. But she was very clear, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Christian. And then one day we were in our small groups, and she was like, yeah, us Christians. And I was like, whoa, you're, you're a Christian now? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, when that happened? She's like, I have no clue. I have no clue. And I'm like, well, how did you find out you were a Christian? She's like, well, some kids were making fun of Christians. And I wasn't just thinking, how dare you make fun of them? I was like, how dare you make fun of me? And I was like, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Do you believe that he died for your sins? Yeah. Do you believe that he rose again? Yeah. Wow. Couldn't exactly fit where it happened. But somewhere along the way, she believed. And so the, our, our stories are different, right? They, they, they converge. Uh, but we've all trusted in Christ Jesus. And we have been fundamentally transformed from darkness into light, from slavery into freedom. And it's a wonderful, glorious thing. And yet somehow, even in the glory and the light of Christ, you and I as Christians still sin, don't we? We still mess up. We still fall back to those old ways. Why should we repent as Christians when we sin? Because when you sin as a Christian, does God throw you out immediately? Does he say, well, you're out? You know, does God, God do that? He is your loving Father. When you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, not only are your sins forgiven, God the Father adopts you into his family. He calls you his son and daughter. And he's not going to deny his own. Our salvation isn't based on us. It's based on him and his goodness. He doesn't kick us out. But then why should we repent when we sin as Christians? We're still in the family. Why should we repent? Why should we turn around? Why should we apologize to God and those we've harmed when we've done wrong? As we continue our journey through 1 Samuel, we're going to see one of the reasons why we should repent when we sin. Now, if you've been following along with the story, uh, Israel's been at, the, at war with the Philistines for a while. Philistines captured the ark. The ark came back to Israel they were terrified of God and didn't want anything to do with him for a while because of lack of repentance. And we pick up the story here in chapter 7, verse 2. It says, From the day the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time passed, in some 20 years, 
and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Uh, My translation here says lamented. Your translations might say seek after. It's the same idea. They missed him, right? Like it's kind of like when a boyfriend and girlfriend, right? They they they're doing a long distance thing, and their heart longs for the other person. Like, oh, I miss him. I miss her. Ah. They lamented after God. So we're not given any context what happened. Uh, there's some indications later on in the text why they might have sought after God, but really this text is, is saying that something happened, that Israel was not following God, and they really didn't want anything to do with him, and they were following, we find out later, false gods. And after 20 years, all of a sudden, all of Israel, all 12 tribes, suddenly turn back and say, I need to follow God again. How does that happen? Why does that happen? I have no clue. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen it throughout the Bible. We see it throughout human history. Who can understand what the Holy Spirit does and why he does it? It's a mystery. If you look at global Christianities from the inception 2,000 years ago, it starts in the Middle East. And then it spreads rapidly to parts of northern Africa and parts of Europe. And then from there, it goes over into the New World, into North America. And where is it growing today as, as, as in phenomenal leaps and bounds? Well, largely in parts of South America and over in parts of Asia, like Vietnam and, and China. It, it's just exploding. And then you look at places where it's declining, like in the Middle East and Europe, and you're like happening? Why is it happening this way? And you know what the answer is? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. The Holy Spirit will do what he does. And obviously here, after 20 years of Israel saying, we don't want anything to do with you, the Holy Spirit stirs the heart, not just of one person, not just of a charismatic leader. If we just have the right person there, he'll be able, we can't do it. The Holy Spirit fills the people with this desire. We miss following the Lord, the the one true God, Yahweh, our King, the King of Israel, the one true King. And so, verse 2, excuse me, verse 3, and Samuel said to the house of Israel, remember Samuel here, he's functioning as, he's a prophet, so he speaks the word of God. He's a judge, so uh, he's not a king. He leads uh, in the place of God communicating what God wants Israel to do. He's not a king. He's saying what your king, God, wants you to do. He does this. And he's a priest. He brings the people before God. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Philistines, they're constantly a huge threat. The Philistines are physically bigger, biologically, than the Israelites. They're just bigger. They have a better war machine. In this time, Israel is barely out of the Stone Age, right? If they have to go to war, they get up their farm implements, and they don't really have armor. Like, okay, I have some leather. Let's put on a couple extra winter jackets. That'll protect me, maybe. And then they march into formation with whatever these these agrarian people have. Meanwhile, the Philistines, they have chariots, they have metallurgy, they have swords, they have spears, they have armor, 
and it's uniform armor, and they were so wealthy and so good at making armor, they actually put flourishes on their armor and, and insignias and feathers, right? So you imagine just a bunch of farmers coming over and then a military force with chariots, which would be like modern-day predator drones, right? And, uh, and they're coming at each other. The Philistines always, always outgunned, so to speak, the Israelites. And so they, they're concerned about them. But, but here, Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord, Yahweh, that's what the Lord means all in caps in the Old Testament, with all your heart, put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. Uh, so the foreign gods, he's referring to Baal. Uh, Baal, in the mythology of the time, he was considered, he was the son of Dagon, who was the god of the Philistines, and Ashtaroth was the, uh, the female consort deity of Baal. Baal, they said, was the god of thunder and fertility. And they said Ashtaroth, she was the, the god of war and, and determined how wars would, were fought. And Israel, for 20 years, were following these gods. And Samuel says, return with all of your heart. It's an interesting phrase that he says there, all of your heart, because in the Bible, the heart isn't the seat of your emotions. It is the core of who you are. When you see in the Bible, talk about your heart. It is your inner self. It is what makes you you. And what's really interesting is this really helped me out. Years ago, one of my professors who's since gone to be with the Lord, Robert Sosi, I know it's spelled saucy, but it's, it's pronounced Sosi. Uh, uh, Dr. Sosi wrote this book, Minding the Heart, which really helped me. And he said that the Hebrew understanding of the heart is that the heart, like an onion, has layers. There's multiple layers to the heart. And then on the outside of the heart, you can have certain desires, but the next layer might have a competing desire. And at the heart of hearts, the deepest place of your heart, you might have something entirely different. This was helpful for me because in my struggles with sin, it's like, man, I want to be a calm person and I don't want to yell. But then, you know, that's somewhere out here in the heart. But then in a deeper place, I want to be listened to. <laughs> and I want to be followed. And so why, why do I have outbursts of anger? Right? Well, it's because in the exterior part of my heart, like, yeah, I really want this. But in the deeper part, I still want to live this way. This is why this has helped me working uh, with brothers and sisters who have addictions right? Who are like, man, you know, I don't want to ruin my family. I don't want to ruin my life. You know, I love my kids. I love my wife. I, I you know, I love my husband. I, I don't want to do this anymore. It's destroying them. And then they, what do they do? They do something that goes and destroys them. And you're like, well, they must obviously not love their wife and kids. They must not love their, their husband and kids. That's why they're keeping doing this, right? No. It's because somewhere, probably in a pretty deep place of the heart, they have this desire. But even deeper, there's an addiction. There's a love for the addiction. And so the, the biblical idea is let's move the good desires of Christ deeper and deeper into our hearts. And so that, that's really helped me in dealing with my own self and dealing with others. And that's what Samuel's saying to them. If you really want to go after God, Make sure it's with your whole heart. Don't say, well, I just want the benefits of God, but really I want to go follow Baal worship and Ashroth. And by the way, we're not going to go into it today. What was involved with Baal worship was horrible. There have been times over my life, people are like, what's involved with Baal worship? And I try to talk about it as clinical as possible. And more than once I've had people say, stop, it's too much. I don't want to hear it anymore. It is horrible. It is horrible. It is really bad. We'll go into that later. Another, another week, another time, I will 
distress everybody. And if you Google it, it doesn't come up correctly. That's the weird thing, too. So you really have to dig in to find out all the horribleness. But it was bad. And, God, and, and Samuel is saying, make sure in your heart of hearts, in the deepest place of your heart, you want to follow after God. Why should we repent when we've sinned? Verse 4, so all the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And by judged, he wasn't like, all right, Bob, you did this, and Sally, you did that. No, no, no. He, he directed them. What God wanted them to do was what it means in this context. Uh, he, uh, it, it's interesting here. They come together, and it says they fast, and then they pour out this water offering, which is really weird because there's nowhere else in the Bible where you see someone pour out a water offering. You're never going to find that anywhere else. This is the only place. But what I think is happening is fasting is a, uh, it, it's giving up food. I, I know, I'm going to step on toes saying this. A true fast is abstaining from food so that you can focus on God. When you abstain from food, you are saying, God, food is important. You are even more important than food. I need you more than I need this food. And I know some people say, well, you know, I'm going to fast from social media. I'm going to fast from entertainment. I'm going to fast from sugar. Those are good. Those are fine. I'm, I'm not I'm not against that, but a real, like you can live without social media. It's possible. You can live without your cell phone. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you can live without entertainment. You can live without, uh, you know, shopping on Amazon for a week or two, right? It, like it feels like you can't, but you can. But really, I mean, food is so important. Like we miss a meal and we're like, oh, it was a rough day. I didn't even get to eat, right? You miss two meals. It's like, oh, what are you doing to me? Like it's the end of the world. Miss three meals. Oh, that's hard. And so a true fast, a spiritual fast, is when you give up food for a certain period of time to devote yourself to God. And it's saying to God, I need you more than I need food. You are the bread of life. Now, normally in a fast, you drink water. But here, they pour the water out as an offering. Because look, how long can you go without food? Go throughout a day, eh, you're uncomfortable. You go for like two days, it's rough. You go for a week, that's, that's horrible. Most of us adults could survive for probably multiple weeks without food. I, I know it, it's shocking for us Americans to hear that. I don't want to do it. It would be uncomfortable. It would be painful. But we could survive for a month without food. How long can you survive without water? If you don't drink water in a day, you're in trouble. Two days, you're in the hospital. Three days, you're dead. And here, Israel is so repentant of their sins, and they so desire to follow after God, they say, we're not just going to fast from food, we are fasting from water. God, we need you more than water, and if we don't have water, we die. If we don't have you, we'll die. Why should we repent when we've sinned? So this is a good, this is a good moment. Now I've <clears throat> talked about water a lot, so I need a little bit more. 
This is a good, this is good what's happening. But then it gets darker. Verse 7, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. Wow. This is pretty rough. So they go to have a worship service. They're, they're having this worship service. And then they, the, all the lords of the Philistines say, oh, they're all gathered in one place. We can take them out right now. <sighs> this isn't good. They didn't gather for war. They gathered for, for worship. And I ask you this question. <laughs> How many of you came to church today armed and ready to go, have, to, go to war? No one, right? No one. Someone's like, I got a pocket knife, right? I know it was a little dangerous. I was afraid someone would be like, well, no. <laughs> None of us came to arm go, to go for war. We're at a worship service for crying out loud. We don't need to come armed for war. Israel didn't come armed for war. They came to go before God, and now, now this, this humble act is being used against them by their enemies. And what do they do? The Bible says they freaked out. My translation. <laughs> they freaked out. They were afraid of the Philistines. They're bigger than us. They're more well-armed than us. They have weapons of war. They have machines of war. What do we have? We just didn't eat for a day and poured out our water. They freaked out and they said to Samuel, please talk to the Lord for us. And they are right to be afraid. They're right to be afraid. And you know what? You are right to be afraid when your enemies come against you. You are. You are. When our enemies come against us, we are right to be afraid because most of your enemies are stronger than you. They have more resources. They have more power. They have more energy. They have more allies. That's why in our country right now, anytime there's a, even the slightest religious liberty issue, Christians, what do we do? We lose our minds. We do. They probably like overreact to it, but it is a normal and natural fear because you know what? The government is stronger than the local church. They can coerce us to do all kinds of things. It's scary. Do you know what? Your employer is stronger than you. Your boss. Yes, I know. It's easy to, to badmouth him or her behind their back, but they are stronger than you. They have more resources. They have more control. They have more power. And when they are bearing down on you, you rightfully are anxious and feel afraid because they are more powerful. When you are, if you get sued, that is a horrifying thing because you know the whole system is more powerful than you. Anyone ever go into court before, right? It's a scary thing. Like, oh, even if you're not there for you. The IRS, don't raise your hands on this. How many of you have been audited by, or gotten a weird letter from the IRS? That wasn't a scam. That is scary stuff because everyone in this room knows that the IRS is more powerful than you. It's scary. More than just your physical enemies, your sin is more powerful than you. My sin is more powerful than me. And so when I am in the midst of my sin, and I'm like, I don't want to do this while I'm doing it. We cry out and freak out, rightfully so, because we know that everything in our lives is more powerful than us. But at the very least, at the very least, Israel says to Samuel the prophet, 
do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he might save us from the hands of the Philistines. Verse 9, so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel, and Yahweh answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Don't skip over verse 9. He took a nursing lamb and offered it as a burnt offering. It's easy for us when we read these words to just kind of skip over them. Or those of us who have been Christians and are familiar with the Old Testament, you're like, yeah, you had to make sacrifices. They were never easy. And the writer of 1 Samuel didn't have to say a nursing lamb. He added that detail so that we would feel something. This was a sacrifice. This was a loss. This was a tragedy. It wasn't enough that the people repented. There had to be a price paid for their sin. And what paid the price? A nursing lamb? A baby? From its mother? Is that fair? It's not. Are you comfortable with that? I'm not. And we're not supposed to be. An innocent life was lost in order to redeem Israel. And because of that sacrifice that was made on behalf of their sin, of their evil, Samuel cries out to the Lord, and Yahweh answers him. As, and, and this is incredible. So there's continuing the worship service, right? Can you imagine if there's enemies at the gate? You know, there's Canada decides to invade us. They're coming down. And you know, 5,000 Canadians, well-armed, guns and maple syrup, coming down this way. And they're outside the door, and, and they're coming, and we're like, hey, guys, I know this is scary what's happening. Let's continue the worship service, okay? Everybody stay here until, until the worship service is over, and then we'll see what happens, right? Like, no, that's not the normal thing to do, but they're having this worship service while the Philistines are marching down. I mean, for all the times ancient Israel messes up, here they get it right. They go, we have no hope but in God. So they continue the service, and when... The sacrifice is finished. The Philistines drew near to attack, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Who is the God of thunder, according to the Philistines? Baal. Ah, no, Yahweh, the one true God. He is the one who thunders. Who determines how battles are fought? Asheroth, one of the gods of the Philistines. No. It's the Lord God Almighty who determines how fights are won, whether by many or by few. And it says he does this by sending them into confusion. So he sends them into confusion, and they start killing themselves as they're running away because they think that their friends are their enemies. I, I've seen this before where uh, in, in youth ministry, we'll play this game called Dizzy Bats. Anyone familiar with that? You take a bat, and usually like a wiffle ball bat, and you'll have a line of kids down here and then there's a whole line of bats down there. And the goal is for one of 
you know, all the teams are against each other. One of the kids, they run down and they get the bat and then they have to put their head on the bat. The bat has to be on the ground and then they have to go around in circles. I'm only going to do it once because that's all I can take at 41 years old. Um, they have to go around 10 times and then their teammates go, come on, come on, Sally, let's go, let's go, let's go, right? And, and their job is to run a straight line across the line so that their team gets the point, right? The first one across gets the point. It's the most wonderful thing to see because no one can run in a straight line at that point. And they're all smart. They're like, all right, I'll go five revolutions this way and then five revolutions this way. That'll equal my eardrum. It won't. It won't. They're all like, right? And they run. <laughs> it's just, it's hilarious. They to they're totally lost. And if I did that right now, I would be done for the rest of the day. In fact, I would feel dizzy for the next three days. I went on one of those rides with my kids a couple years ago and they're like, yeah, and I, 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 I was sick for like three days afterwards. I can't do that anymore. That's what God does. He sends them into confusion, and they just, they fall on their own swords. They're, they're fighting each other, and they are defeated because it wasn't because of Israel's might. It was because of God's might. And then, verse 12 it says, then Samuel took the stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Wow. So what's amazing is this place, Ebenezer, is around the area where they lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. We saw a few weeks ago. And now here they have one of their greatest victories. And what does Samuel do? He, he, he sets up this stone. He calls its name Ebenezer, which means God helps. Not just like God, you know, he, kind of helped. He's my help. No, God helps. God helps us when we can't help ourselves. Uh, that's, you, you, you know that name, Ebenezer. You know it from the Christmas Carol, right? And why is his, and, and if you look at the first part of the story, mostly he's called Scrooge because uh, he's all miserly. At the end, after his conversion, if you will, he is called Ebenezer more often because he is the stone of help. He helps others now instead of helping only himself. Ebenezer, God is our help when we cannot help ourselves. If you know the hymn, Come Thou Founts, if you're familiar with that, we know it from these lyrics. In the second verse, it says, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. I've got a little more sermon to do. But for those of you who are so inclined, sing this verse with me. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. 
Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. God helps us when we can't help ourselves. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. That verse 17, Ramah, for those of you who've been here, should perk up your ears a little bit. This Ramah is where Samuel, the miracle child, where he was conceived. Rama is where his mother, who was infertile and was unable to have children, where God supernaturally blessed her to have Samuel. And after all of these years, he finds his way back home. I don't know if his mom's still there, but he has brothers and sisters, half-brothers, half-sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins. I think there's a sweet moment here. I don't fully understand the meaning of it, but he finds it there. Why should we repent? When we've sinned. Well, when Israel repented after they sinned, what happened? They had victory over the Philistines, not just a temporary victory, a victory for the rest of the life of Samuel. That is a long time. Why do we as Christians repent? Why should we repent when we have sinned? Now, first of all, if you've never repented before of your sins, First and foremost, we repent so that we can have life in Jesus. We repent and believe that Jesus died for our sins and our sins are forgiven. We have a right relationship with God. We are adopted by God into his family and we have an eternal hope. But when we're Christians, we already have all of that. Why do we repent when we've done wrong as Christians? Well, according to this text, Even us followers of Christ, when we mess up, when we sin, we should repent because God will give us victory in Jesus. We will live a victorious life. How often do you know Christians that are absolutely the most miserable people you've ever met in your entire life? And you're like, man, don't put them out in public because people will see that and they'll say, I don't want anything to do with this kind of Christian. There's no joy. There's no hope. There's no peace. Ah, I don't know what the reason is for that. That more is a psychological question, but we should be victorious Christians. And when we repent, and I think repentance should be a part of the regular Christian life, when we regularly repent, when we repent when we've done wrong, we are given victory in the name of King Jesus. Now, it wasn't enough for Israel to just repent. What had to happen? The lamb had to be slain. And the reason they had those sacrifices is those foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice of King Jesus. It's not just enough for us to say to God, God, we're wrong. God, I know. But there has to be a price for our sin. Jesus took the penalty for our sin upon that cross. He shed his blood so that whoever believes can have eternal life, so that we can be forgiven. That lamb who was slain is resurrected and lives forevermore and will come again in glory and power and set up his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. And he, right now, to his children, when we sin, he gives us victory if we repent. Because right now, as a Christian, it's not a matter of your salvation when you, when you sin. 
What's it a matter of? It's a matter of your relationship with God. You know, my kids and your kids, those of you who have kids, right? When they sin, you're like, well, you're out of the family. Is that how that works? No, of course not. Does it damage the relationship? Sure does. And whose fault is it? It's yours, Dad, for all the... No, it's, it's yours. You're the one who did the sin. <laughs> You're the one who called me that name. No, and when we sin, what we're doing, we're putting up barriers between us and God, just like Israel did. We're putting up barriers. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to do with you. But you know what? When we repent, those barriers come down immediately and God forgives us and the relationship is restored. And here's the thing. When we repent, we have victory in Jesus. And our victory doesn't look like victory the way the world defines it on wealth and finances and personal glory. It's far deeper. Our victory as Christians means the power to love our enemies, which is utterly impossible apart from the power of Christ. Our victory means that we have the power over sin and we can have the power and have the glory of Christ to no longer be enslaved to sin, no longer be held in bondage to sin, and we can stand up and say no in the power and the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. Our victory in Jesus is us able to do good in this world that doesn't just last for a moment, that doesn't just last for a minute, but stretches into eternity and reverberates into the new kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth that is coming when King Jesus comes back. Our victory fundamentally changes who we are and God the Holy Spirit fills us with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Fundamentally changes who we are. Paul talked about this victory in Romans 8. Let me read it for you. In Romans 8, verse 31, Paul said, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want to have victory, repent. Why should you repent? Because when you repent, King Jesus gives you victory. Victory comes from the hand of God. Let's pray. Father, here we are. Broken and perfect people people who have sinned, have fallen short, and we are in desperate need of a renewed relationship with you. Father, I pray for us as a congregation, remove the, the barrier of sin that we've placed up. 
Father, as we join together in prayer, we repent. We repent corporately. We repent as individuals. We know that all have fallen short of the glory of God. But we also know that your, your wonderful gift of repentance restores us every single time. Even if we have to come to you a hundred times a day, even if we have to come to you a thousand times a day, the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all unrighteousness. Father, thank you for this gift. I pray for us as a church. I know culturally in America, I know culturally in American churches, repentance isn't talked about enough among Christians. I know we've become a prideful, arrogant people who take this beautiful gift of salvation that we have and we just live however we want to. We allow pride to grow up and build in our hearts. And we refuse to repent when we're wrong. Father, that's killing us. Our enemies are bearing down upon us and destroying us. The Philistines of our lives are ready to defeat us. But victory comes through repentance. And so, Father, I pray that us as a local congregation a local representation of the body of Christ, that we will be a humble people, that I will be a humble pastor. And when we sin, we will repent and enjoy the glory and the beauty and the rest of your salvation. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbcterrytown.org.